looking at uh, the next part of our series in Romans, the book of Romans. Uh, as I, you possibly know by now, if you've been here a little while, we've been doing this series and we're on to part 10. I know some other people who did this in 35 parts. You'll be pleased to know we're going to stop somewhere around 14. <laughs> somewhere around there, hopefully. Um, part 14. Where um, I, I won't go back over the first uh, eight chapters, um, but it's there. Can you pop the first slide up for me, actually? Um, it's, it's there, and all the notes and all the talks are on our website if you want to catch up. Um, but last week, uh, we entered into quite a special part of Romans. Uh, we looked at chapter 9, part of chapter 9, and part of chapter 10 last week. And as I said to you uh, last week, and somebody's already uh, reiterated to me today, um, many, many Christians, many, many pastors and teachers, as they work through Romans, they get to the end of chapter 8 and they kind of miss out the next three chapters and jump straight on to chapter 12. And you could understand that because it flows quite nicely, as I'll show you later. But actually, if you miss out chapter 9, 10, 11, you've missed out a massive part of the heart of God. And what some people think is actually the pinnacle of this letter, this chapter, the reason, certainly the reason why Paul decided to write to the Roman church in the first place. If you remember right back to the start of this series, I talked a little bit about it then, but when Paul writes to the Roman church, the Roman church has Christians in it who are from a Jewish background and Christians in it who are from a non-Jewish background. They have Jews and Gentiles there. And in that church, there are some issues around how they're expressing their faith. That's one of the main reasons that Paul saw it was necessary to actually write this letter in the first place. And so last week, at chapter 9, we, um, we looked at how Paul expressed a deep anguish that his own people, his own race, his own tribe, the Jewish people, had rejected their Messiah. And we also looked on in chapter 10 about how Paul uh, really uh, exhorted, I can't think of a better word than that, just massively encouraged the church that their job was to preach the gospel across the whole world, but very specifically to those with a Jewish background. That that was the, mess, that was the message of Paul, that the job of the church was to evangelise the Jewish nation, Israel, and the whole world. And if you remember, we read some of those texts, and they've quite often been quoted in church. How will they know? How will they know, it says in chapter 10, if nobody tells them? And, and who will go and tell them if they haven't been sent? And how beautiful are the feet of the people who go and t- send, bring the gospel. And that stuff's been talked about in the church, but quite often it's been lifted out of its context and talked about just in terms of the whole world. And, not, and that's, that's good, but the specific context for Paul was regarding people of a Jewish nationality, people with a Jewish background. How will they know? Um, Tim Keller sums up the teaching of chapter 9 and 10 in just a couple of verses, which I'll read to you. He says, God cho- this is the s- a summary of what Paul has said in, the, in chapters 9 and 10. God chooses those who he, who he will save through faith in the gospel. We are responsible for our rejection of him and his gospel. And so the Jews are also responsible for their refusal to turn to Christ. And they haven't come to faith because God has not yet chosen to have mercy on them. That's basically what Paul is saying. In 9 and 10. And that leads us really nicely on to chapter 11, which is what we're going to talk about this week. So I titled last week's talk, God's Heart for Israel. And this week's talk is called God's Plan for Israel. And I'm going to read through pretty much the whole of chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to follow with me. If you've got it on your phone or your um, iPad or something, or we've got some real Bibles as well at the back if you want to grab one. Um, Sorry, real Bibles? Is that what I meant? (laughs) 
I heard this week that you know, in in the rise of e-books, um, paper books are making a comeback. People actually like the the, the yeah. Oh, wow! Didn't mean to stir at one there. We'll read chapter eleven, and I'm going to read it from the NIV. This is big picture stuff. And it's quite in-depth, and it's quite complex, and at parts, in times it's been quite controversial. But it, for me, it really represents the heart of God. And the truth is, there are many people much more qualified than me to talk about this, and some of them are in this room. But anyway, I'm grateful to the theologians and Bible teachers that I've been able to study and read who've enlightened me on this. Two, two particular ones that I've been looking at, as you know, are Tim Keller from New York and Simon Ponsonby from Oxford. I'm also quoting from a homegrown uh, theologian here today, which is uh, Neil Macarath, where, wherever he is, <laughs> somewhere around. Neil wrote a fantastic book, which I'll, uh, I'll uh, reference later and, and quote from later. But let's look at chapter 11 from verse 1, the remnant of Israel. Here's Paul. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in that passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? This is Elijah speaking. Lord, they've killed your prophets and turned down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. This is Paul quoting Elijah. And what was God's answer to him, Paul says? God's answer was this. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Back to Paul. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. Because if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear. To this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. This is us. Listen up. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul says, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that somehow I may somehow arouse my people to envy and to save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. I told you it was dense. It's good stuff though. Verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, oh, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. 
Verse 22. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, then they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to the nature were grafted onto a, into a cultivated olive tree, then how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this my covenant with them. And when I take their sins. Verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Irrevocable? Irrevocable? Irrevocable. irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> Probably all need to have a cup of tea and a sit down after that, don't we? <laughs> Essentially, Paul is answering, asking and answering two questions here. The first one is, has God rejected Israel? The answer is very clearly no. And the second question, therefore, that follows on from that is, so are they beyond recovery? And the answer again is no. And as we work through this chapter, I want to make four key points and various sub-points. The first one is that God has not rejected Israel. Verse 1, I ask then, did God reject his people by no means. And Paul firmly answers this question and he, he provides a little bit of evidence, a number of lines of evidence to back it up. The first line of evidence, he says, well, for a start, let's start with me, he says. I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He's got his proper Israelite credentials, his bloodline. This is me, Paul's saying. I'm one of these people he hasn't rejected me, so therefore, it starts here. He also says in verse 2 that God determined or predetermined or foreknew, and we've used that language before in, in Romans, that God has already determined that Jews will come to faith. That's part of his plan. We'll come to how that works a bit later. And then he talks about this idea of a remnant, that God has provided a remnant. Now, a remnant means a few people who are left, just a few, after a great disaster. And that idea is something that resonates with Jewish history. In the Old Testament, uh, many, many Jewish people were exiled out of their land and into Babylon. Many of them stayed there forever. Um, but, and and it, it almost felt like, you know, they were gone. But there was a remnant left in Israel. This is after the time of Solomon. And, and Paul's not referring to that particularly, but he's referring to uh, Elijah here. And this story you can read for yourself in 1 Kings 19. Elijah is on the run. He's hiding in a cave. He's hiding for his life. 
and kind of pleading with God for his life, claiming to be the only one of God's people left. Your people have abandoned you. No one else believes apart from me. Those are the words of Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me. What's going to happen? And God's answer to him was, do you know what? That isn't true. I have reserved for myself 7,000. There is a remnant. 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. Tom Wright, who's another Bible scholar, says this. Paul has picked up this biblical idea of remnant and brought it forwards and applied it to the situation he's talking about now. What happened in the exile in Babylon is now happening to the Jewish people as they come through possibly the greatest crisis of all which is the work and the death and the resurrection of their Messiah and the fact that they've mostly missed it. So Paul is saying there was a remnant then and there's a remnant now. And when you get to verse 5 and 6, he says, uh, this is the remnant, there's a remnant at the present time and he has another word for them, he calls them the elect. Now we didn't really spend too much time dealing with this part of chapter 9, but the elect harks back to something he spoke about in chapter 9. Uh, verse 6, where he says this thing, not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Which is a bit funny to understand. But what he's doing basically is he's making a distinction. He's saying you can apply the word Israel two different ways. Okay, he's, There's a distinction between the nation of Israel, everybody who lives in the nation of Israel, who for the most part, Paul says, are a hardened majority. Most of the people who would call themselves Jews are not believing in their Messiah. But not all descended from Israel are Israel. And the other Israel he's talking about is the, the believing minority. There are some who have recognised who their Messiah is and are choosing to believe, and he calls them the elect. And that's quite an important distinction when it comes to later on in this chapter. You see, election, the process of being chosen by God is complete work of grace. This is what God does because he can. Election and grace are completely inseparable, just like salvation is a work of grace. It has nothing to do with our practices or our religion. It has everything to do with what God does. And again, you can see later on, I'm going to move on from this, but Paul backs this up in 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 with, with some more quotes from the Old Testament, the majority of Israel have hardened themselves and therefore God has allowed them to continue to be hardened. He's hardened them. And then in 9 and 10, he refers to judgment. And judgment isn't ever a nice thing to talk about and it sounds harsh, but it is just literally just the natural consequences of the choices that we make. If we reject God, God rejects us. That's just the natural consequences of it in the big picture scheme of things but it's okay because God has a plan when our kids were little uh, one of them I can't remember which was about two or three and they looked very earnestly at us and said don't worry daddy I have a plan God's got a plan <laughs> if you if you like certain cultural comedy references you might want to say it's a very cunning plan <laughs> and God's plan for Israel is in three stages and you read it, read it from verse 11. And stage one, in fact, I'll just read 11 and 12. Again, I ask, this is verse 11, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. 
Rather, because of their transgression, their transgression, the, the Jews' transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That's a funny thing to say, isn't it? But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? There's a three-stage plan at work here. Stage one is that Israel has transgressed. Israel has gone against God's purposes for them. Many, many Jews have rejected Christ. And because many Jews rejected Christ, basically many Gentiles heard Christ. And receive Christ. Imagine for a minute if what we read about in the New Testament had gone a bit differently. Imagine if Jesus had showed up and he'd preached in the synagogues and everybody had believed and fallen on their feet and said, Yes, you are the Messiah, we recognize you. The question is if that was the truth, if that had happened, would we, the Gentiles, have ever even heard about Jesus? I'm not sure if we would. So there was this pattern, and you can read about it again and again in the early church in Acts. The apostles um, show up to some town, they go to the synagogue, they preach the good news of Jesus, and opinion is divided on how to respond. And some people respond, some Jewish people respond, say, yes, of course, that makes complete and utter sense. This is the fulfillment of my religion, my faith. And others say, how dare you say that? And they react hostilely and negatively and they do things like putting the disciples in chains and beating them and chasing them out of town. And so consequently, what happens then is the apostles continue to preach, but they preach to anybody else around who will listen. And consequently, the New Testament church is a multi-ethnic church, just like the one in Romans that Paul's talking about. So when Paul says in verse 12, their transgression means riches for the world, it's as if this is part of a plan that God put together. That the, it's, see if you can get, bend your head around this. It's almost as if God is asking the Jews, his people, or God is enabling his people to experience this short-term rejection and suffering. And by short-term, I mean well, for the last 2,000 years and for the rest of time. But, but because, because he's asking them to do that, because of their, the cost to them, the rest of us get to receive God's salvation. Isn't that, doesn't that mean that he's asking them to do a little bit what he did to his own son? That what God asked the Jews to do was what God asked Jesus to do. And all of it, for whose purposes and whose benefit? Ah, oh, it's you and me. So stage one is that Israel has transgressed, and because Israel rejected God, the Gentiles received salvation. That's stage one. Stage two is that the Gentile salvation is supposed to make Israel jealous or envious. Now, that doesn't mean negatively jealous in a, you know, I mean, you do read in Acts occasionally where some of the Jews came to the apostles and they were clearly envious of the power that they had and the influence that they had, but that's not what we're talking about here. The Jews being envious of the way that the Gentiles experience and embrace the the gospel. You know, the reality of righteousness through grace alone. The fact that you and I don't have to do anything to be saved other than just come to Jesus 
The fact that when we live the Jesus way, our life should reflect and communicate the hope and the joy and the peace of what it is to be a believer in Jesus. What it is to live his story. You must know the story of the prodigal son. If you don't, it's, um, it's quite a well-known one from the Bible. This is a picture by a guy called Charlie Mackesy. In the story of the prodigal son, which is a, a, a parable that Jesus tells in the book of Luke, um, a young man wishes his father dead and seriously disrespects him by taking out his inheritance early, um, moving, on, moving on and basically squandering it on drinking, partying and prostitutes. That's, that's what he does. And when he comes back with his tail between his legs, the expectant father is just there waiting to celebrate his return. Now that tells us some amazing things about the heart of God. But there's another guy in the story, isn't there? There's the old brother. And in Luke 15, 29, this is just a, I think it's a, it's the best I could find anyway. Um, a visual representation of the older brother. The old brother answers his father, look, many years, these many years I've served you, he says, and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And yet this son of yours comes home. He's devoured your property with prostitutes and you kill the fattened calf for him. Questioning. How come this guy gets in free after all he did? And I've been here the whole time. And I've served you the whole time. And that questioning causes the father to turn to the older brother and say, My son, this is verse 31. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. You are my firstborn. It's a little bit like the jealousy, I think, that Paul's talking about. Let me give you one other example. There's a story in Acts chapter 6 where the early church sets aside some of people um, to make sure that the poor widows in their community were being properly looked after in the daily food distribution I've read this thing so many times. It's all about leadership and it's all about delegation and it's all about, you know, hearing God. Actually, it's not. Well, it might be about that, but I've spotted something else here. Because it says that as soon as they had made sure that the poor were being properly looked after in their community, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied and a great many Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. So there's a story right there in Acts of how the Jewish believers were envious of the faith that the Gentile Christians had. Do you get me? And they turned to it. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. So the church is meant to make the Jews jealous. And the truth is, guys, over the past 2,000 years, the church has done anything but make the Jews jealous. The church has made the Jews, it's invited fear, mistrust and scorn. And Jews have long memories and they had some brutal treatment at the hands of Christians. I could read you a whole bunch of quotes from the church history and from the church fathers. But I don't really have time, luckily for you. For many Christians, the cross wasn't just the symbol of the crucified Jesus Christ. For many Christians in church history, the cross was a symbol of the Jews as Christ killers. I talked a little bit about this last week. About this idea that the Jews had this curse on them because they were the ones who, who killed Jesus. One, the truth is that if the cross is that for Christians, or has been that for Christians, then for Jews, the cross has been a symbol of Jew killers. 
One American Jewish scholar described how she grew up believing that if she looked at a cross on a church, she would die. And I will just read you one example, which is from the Crusades, the Wars of the Crusades, not one of our greatest periods of history. In the Crusades, European Christian armies fought under the sign of the cross with the blessing of the Pope to recapture holy sites in the Middle East from Muslim rule. On their way to doing that, they killed Jews and stole their wealth to finance the crusade. Here's one report from 1099. Arriving in Israel, the crusaders were not simply fighting the Saracens, they were annihilating the remnant, sorry, they were not simply fighting the Saracens, they were annihilating the remnant Jews who lived peaceably alongside the Muslims. In 1099, during the siege of Jerusalem, crusaders filled Jerusalem's chief synagogue with women and children, old and young, and burned it to the ground. Allegedly, kneeling and singing, Christ we adore thee. Swords raised as crosses, tears rolling down their faces, believing their brutal acts were devotions received by Christ. Now, the truth is there are a few people who did swim against the tide, particularly the Puritans in the 17th century and other evangelicals like Lord Shaftesbury in the 19th century. But for the most part, honestly, the the church has miserably failed. Miserably failed to represent the Jewish Jesus to the Jews. And we need to respond to that. We need to respond to that. That was stage two that was supposed to happen. Paul is hopeful and he looks ahead in stage three to what he describes in verse 12 as a time of full inclusion or a time of greater riches. Verse 12, if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And then in verse 15, Paul says, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That doesn't sound like very much. But it kind of leads us on into the rest of this chapter and the hope, the sure hope that Paul has when we get to verse 25, that all Israel will be saved. Before that, he just goes on to um, give some encouragement to those of us who are Gentiles. And he talks about this idea of an olive tree, a wild olive tree. Now, I don't know much about grafting. I do remember that when I was a kid um, visiting my grandfather's house, I remember one day him showing me some trees in the garden and saying, do you notice that the the bark on that trunk is different from the bark on that branch? And I looked at it and I was like, oh yeah. And I remember him describing to me the process of grafting, how he'd done it himself, how he'd grafted these branches into the tree. Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off, And you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Verse 18, then don't consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. William Ramsey, the New Testament scholar, provides a bit of horticultural insight here. In exceptional circumstances, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree, which is ceasing to bear fruit, by grafting it in, with a shoot of the wild olive, so that the sap of the tree ennobles this wild shoot and the tree now again begins to bear fruit. And you can see that's what's happened here. 
you can see how someone has taken this old olive root, which doesn't appear to be having many trees, <laughs> having many branches, healthy branches, and they've grafted in a wild branch. And Paul says, this is what it's like. And he, he said, this is what it's like. This is you guys, the Gentiles. You've been grafted into this root. And he warns the Gentiles about their attitude. He says, so don't boast about it. Don't consider yourself superior. You know, you may think that branches have been broken off so that you could be grafted in. But if you could be grafted in, then how much easier would it be for the original branches to be grafted in? He says, just because the Jews have rejected the Messiah, you're no more deserving than they are. Remember that. We're going to have communion at the end of this morning. In just a few minutes. We are no more deserving of Jesus' Jesus's resurrection, saving power than anybody else. So don't be arrogant, but fear. Tremble. Fear God. Meditate, Paul says, on the kindness and the sternness of God in verse 22. And there's just some warnings to us about this. And then it moves on to the last part, verse 25, which, where Paul makes this amazing, astonishing declaration that all Israel will be saved. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, by mystery, he doesn't mean something that's puzzling or hard to grasp. He just means something that was hidden and is now being revealed. I'm revealing this to you. God's big, big plan. God's all-time big picture plan. He's building to another crescendo. I don't know if you've noticed that, but he is. Who will be saved, he says? All Israel will be saved. He makes four points. There's a general cons consensus among scholars across all of the Christian traditions that Paul is firmly referring to his belief in an end-time conversion to Christ of all of ethnic Israel. In other words, the people that is the Jews. Jonathan Edwards, the preacher, said, nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews in the 11th chapter of Romans. Now remember what I said before. Paul makes a clear distinction between ethnic Israel and believing Israel. So he probably doesn't mean every single Jew, but he means the large majority of those who are from a Jewish background are going to be saved. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, as I said to you, our very own uh, academic over here, Neil, has written about this in a book that he wrote on biblical prophecy called Signs, which you can buy from Amazon. Let me just read you. I think you can probably buy it from Neil as well, can you? <laughs> he might even give you a discount and sign it for you if you ask him nicely. Let me read you what he writes here. Israel, in Paul's mind, does not mean every person on the earth who is ethnically speaking a Jew. It means every Jewish person who is faithful to God and who has put God at the centre of their lives and exercised faith in God, come what may. In other words, a Jewish person must be a believer in God to be regarded as part of Israel in this word. Jewish descent is not enough. Jewish descent plus faith in God is what not only constitutes true citizenship in Israel, but also being right with God. All Israel, Paul says. When will they be saved? After the fullness of the Gentiles. When all of the elect of the Gentiles are saved, then the hardness that the, that the Jews feel will soften for the majority of Israel. And Paul prophesies that's what's going to happen. They're going to be saved. Many people think it's beginning to happen now. 
that there's already, we're already witnessing a time when Jews are turning to Christ. They don't call themselves Christians. They call themselves Messianic Jews. Now, this is offensive if you believe that humans should be in charge of their own destiny. But if you believe that God is sovereign and he's in charge of choosing and he's in charge of saving, then this is life. So who will be saved? All Israel. When will they be saved? After the fullness of the Gentiles. Who will save them? And Paul's very clear on this. The deliverer coming from Zion, i.e. Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Not via historic election or covenants or the keeping of the law or the bloodline to Abraham. The only way to be saved, Paul says, is through Jesus. Otherwise, his death on the cross is meaningless. And lastly, why? Why will they be saved? And Paul says, and this is a paraphrase, but basically because God is God. In verse 27, he says God keeps his covenants. God keeps his promises. In verse 28, he says the Jews are loved for the faith of their fathers. They have a special place in his heart. In verse 29, he says the gifts and calling of God are I couldn't say it before, could I? Irrevocable. 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 What that means is they can't be repented of, they can't be changed, they can't be turned back. It's a one-way deal. And in verse 30 and 31, it's because of God's great mercy. Let me read you one more quote from our esteemed friend, Neil, over here. When the full number of Gentile branches, I'm leaning down because it's gone very small on my screen. When the full number of Gentile branches has come into the olive tree, there will be a new time frame, one in which Jewish people will turn from godlessness and look upon the one whom they pierced at Calvary and weep with repentance. There will be a great move of the Holy Spirit among the Jewish people, so great that we will be able to declare in the midst of heartfelt adoration to God that all Israel is saved. At the very least, this points to an end-time harvest in which not only are millions of Jews gathered into the nation of Israel, but also gathered into the kingdom of God. Now, I don't claim to know very much about biblical prophecy. But that's what I'm reading when I'm reading Romans chapter 11. I don't claim to understand it all. But this, but this seems to be what Paul is saying. Paul has shown what God's plan is and he's prophesied an end time harvest of the Jews. I haven't commented today on the Holocaust and I won't accept to say that if the destiny of these people is so much on God's heart and so much part of his plan, then no wonder the enemy tried his best to wipe them out. There are some other really tricky issues around this subject, which well-known and respected Christian theologians disagree on. A lot of it's centred on the physical land of Israel, of, of Palestine, the land, and how that fits into God's plan. I'm not going there today, because Paul doesn't really talk about it here. And I'm trying to stick to the text. I would just simply say two or three things, and that's this. Just because we're called to love and reach out to the Jews as a people does not mean we have to approve of everything their government does as a state. Okay? Those are two completely separate things. Some of the ways in which Jews treat their neighbours 
in the ongoing conflict are evil and unkind. The Jewish state. Some of the way their neighbours treat them is also evil and unkind. And I just, as I watched the news, as I was saying a bit last week, sometimes you just look at it and you think, oh my goodness, what on earth? And then when I read some Christians on the subject, I think, oh my goodness, what on earth? How can you say that? You know, this isn't saying that. The answer to the conflict in the Middle East is the saving work of Jesus. It's a spiritual issue, not a political one, like I said last week. So we can pray for Israel and we can love God's people. They are the firstborn and God really wants them. And we can pray for Palestine and we can love God's people there. And you know Paul very well, who's part of our team and has spent much of his life, Paul and Katie, in the Middle East, witnessing to, living with um, Muslims and Arabs and loving them because they are God wants all nations to himself. He loves all people. He loves all people groups. just want to conclude with this, really. It's really great. Romans chapter 8 finishes with this amazing passage about the love of God. We read it the last Sunday, just before Christmas. Nothing can separate us from God, from the love of God. Romans chapter 12 starts with an amazing passage about God's mercy. We'll look at it next week. In view of God's mercy. And in between, all that God is talking about with regard to Israel is love and mercy. Right in between. Right in between. This is the heart of God to his people and to all people. Love and mercy. We're going to take communion together. And I just want to encourage you as we think about that. Joe, can you organise with? If you're coming to serve communion today, I'd love you to just come. And um, is anybody coming to serve communion today? Oh, great. I just had a moment then and thought, have we organised this? (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Now, just briefly, how we do communion in this church is very straightforward. If you believe in the Lord Jesus and you love him and you want to... um, celebrate communion with us then you're more than welcome to there are no other requirements or rules uh how we do it practically is we take some bread and we dip it in the wine and we have bread and wine and there'll be stations all around as we do that why don't we stand together and let me just say this as we come into communion maybe band if you guys go first and then come up and lead us in worship that would be great thank you how How do we respond to this? Responding to this issue about how the church has treated the Jews, we need to confess on behalf of our predecessors. We may need to do that. We certainly need to pray and intercede. We need to, as Paul says, we need to provoke a response by the way that we live. And we need to pray blessing. And we need to reach out. Some of us are specifically called to do that. Maybe God is talking to you about that today. But even if he isn't, as you come to communion, just come and give thanks to God for this amazing and overarching sovereign plan that he has, his work of salvation. And how do we respond in terms of the rest of the world and maybe to our friends? Well, there's one verse that I read. (laughs) I've tried to read it twice. Just this, that the gifts of And the call of God are irrevocable. 
<laughs> irrevocable. And can uh, they are, they're irrevocable. So whatever God has spoken to you about, about anybody, be they Jewish, be they Muslim, be they atheist, be they friend, family or foe, if God has showed you that he has a plan for someone's life and you aren't yet seeing that, then this is a time to bring that back before God. It might be a member of your own family. It might be somebody who's very close to you. The gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And they won't change. And so as you come to communion, maybe that's the thing to come. That you're, for yourself, yes. Praying thanks to God for yourself and your own salvation, yes. Remembering what Jesus did on the cross and then praying that for those you know who still are yet to walk in the fullness of that. And particularly for, for those, if you know people who are, who are Jewish by background, then there's a really great time to pray blessing on them. Can we do that together? Let's just pray. I just want to read from earlier in Romans, from chapter 3. We've looked at this a few weeks ago. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we remember that truth as we celebrate your death and your resurrection. And Lord, as we symbolically take bread and wine at this point, Lord, may this truth become reality to us and to others that we're praying for and thinking about and working with and relating to. In Jesus' name, amen.